All right, I'm going to get started. Okay. All right, uh, thanks for coming. This class is Sacrament and Grief. If you're at the class the, about the Reformation, you're in the wrong place, and you will not hurt my feelings if you need to leave. Um, hey, Rhett, would you close that back door? Thanks so much. Um, all right, so I'm, I'll pray for us, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get going. Hey, Kim. Um, as a twin, that's just not fair to do that, I know, right? No. <laughs> hey. All right, um, dear Lord, thanks for today. Thank you for giving us yourself. Um, thank you for the opportunity to join together um, and uh, to, to hear about you and hear about good news in Christ. And pray you'd help me with this class. Pray that this that help me be clear. Um, pray that uh, words would be your words, words driven by your spirit for the sake of your glory and, um, and for the comfort of, of all of us who struggle. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so um, just a just a little warning here. This class is um, this class. Yeah, come on in. No, no need to hesitate. And if y'all want some food, there's plenty over there. Um, so um, so this class is going to have it's going to it's going to be abstract at points. There's going to be some stuff that's somewhat difficult. It's some of the most difficult theological stuff that I've dealt with. And so um, if at some point I'm not clear, just kind of do this. That means pump the brakes, all right? Pump the brakes. Don't know where you're going. Lauren, wife, please, please give me the pump the brakes, if you would. Um, But just to give you, this is the second part of a class, and the the, the title is Sacrament and Grief, uh, Coping with the Physical Absence of God. And um, so what we're looking at, we're looking at grief, um, grief, like I'm talking about grief from my life, uh, grief for the loss of my son, um, but we're also talking about grief as it pertains to um, the physical absence of God. And so the, the thing that unites and that we talked about last week is wrestling with physical absence. Um, so I had two friends who their first child, their daughters were going off to college and they talked about how they were grieving and they were mourning. And, uh, and so, you know, that, that language kind of struck me because they're, um, <laughs> I love it, um, because, you know, their children hadn't died. Their children were just going to college. But what they were wrestling with was the physical absence of their child in their house because the child was shipping off one to Stanford, one to Baylor. And so, um, and so then we're thinking about grief as it pertains to losing friends and loved ones uh, as, you know, coping with their physical absence. But we kind of have looked at how Jesus prepares the disciples for his physical absence before he dies, um, before his uh, resurrection, and before he ascends into heaven. How is it that Jesus prepares the disciples to cope with his physical absence? And so um, we, uh, here we go, mourning to, to feel regret or absence or sadness about the loss or disappearance of something. Um, you know, and, and, and so we kind of focused on how Jesus gives the disciples physical things, and God throughout the Bible gives believers physical things to help them cope with uh, his physical absence and to cope with the spiritual and abstract non-tangible nature of, uh, of God's reality and so this um, the kind of jumping off point for the class is this letter that uh, my friend's dad wrote to me um, before or the day after my son's funeral and basically my son and I had gone to a friend's dad's farm in Chelsea on his birthday in 2013, and uh, we had just this wonderful day, had this great day, and then about two months later, he passed away. And so my friend's dad wrote me this letter where he said, you know, we regretted to miss you at the funeral, 
Um, but he said um, the enclosed, which was this uh, tractor, my son rode around on, on Mr. Averett's green tractor um, when we went to his farm. But he said the enclosed uh, is to tide you over until you schedule, your schedule will permit another visit to Chelsea, another visit to the farm. And so he gave me something physical, gave me something physical to tide me over, to help me cope until the next time I'd be able to go to the farm. And so, you know, we talked about how in one sense, he, maybe he meant, you know, when I'd have a future child who I'd take to the farm on a higher level, maybe he was talking about until, you know, the next time I would have a perfect day with my son in heaven. And so what that created was this inverted arc of time where when it comes to grief, we have, you know, this past memory, this past time where we were physically with someone or in the case of the disciples, when they were physically with Jesus. And then we have this reunion in heaven, this hope for the future. Uh, but here we are stuck in present suffering. Um, you know, in between two times when we will physically be in the presence of someone who has passed away. And, uh, and so we look at how Jesus, uh, in John 16, institutes the Last Supper. He gives them communion. And uh, he gives them something physical. The bread, the body of Christ, the blood, the blood of Christ as something physical to help them cope with the physical absence of him in between when they were with him and that future day when they'll be, the physical reality when they'll be with him in heaven and when they'll physically be with him in the restored earth. And so that is, we kind of use that to talk about sacraments. Sacraments being one way of looking at it as physical things that God gives us to help us cope with his physical absence. Um, and we, um, what was I going to say? Uh, in the same way that my friend's dad gave me something physical, a physical reminder to help me cope with my son's physical absence as I wait till the day, as I wait in between, the, the, to remember the day in the past and to look to the day in the future when we'll be physically together. All right, so today, um, let's get that. Today we're going to talk about um, experiencing God's presence as, as the second thing, kind of a second thing that Christ promises the disciples as he's getting ready to die, okay? And so when we talk about communion, um, there are traditionally, we're going to get all into this, but there are traditionally uh, two functions of communion. One is uh, to remember, a function of remembering Christ. You see that word counted three times in the liturgy, uh, the communion liturgy today that it re to remember Christ's death and resurrection, remember how Christ died for sinners. So it, it functions as a memorial. Um, and secondly, it also functions to help us in a uh, more palpable, understandable way to help us grasp and experience the presence of God with us. And where we're going with this is, you know, Jesus in John chapter 14 to 17, it's called his farewell discourse. Jesus is prepping the disciples for his death. He's preparing them for when he will go. And, um, and so Jesus institutes the Last Supper. He institutes communion. Uh, but he also talks about the gift of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost, how perfect. Didn't plan this. Um, but he promises the coming of the Holy Spirit. And he also promises union with Christ. We're going to get more into what all that means but these are, these are some of the primary comforts that God gives us uh, to cope with the difficulty of life, the loneliness, the sadness, the grief of life until we get to heaven. The promise of the presence of the Holy Spirit with us and in us, 
the promise of Jesus Christ in our soul and us in the soul of Christ in heaven. The two, those are the two, two primary spiritual things that he promises. And so that is part of what communion is, is going to help us to, um, to understand and experience because it's very hard. I mean, you can already tell. We haven't gotten into the details. But you can already tell how abstract and hard that is for us to comprehend that Jesus Christ actually is presently dwelling in my heart and your heart and how in some mysterious way we are dwelling in the soul of Jesus Christ in heaven right now. It's mind-boggling, you know. Anyhow, so, um, so to start off, we're going to do a short lesson on communion. All right, um, and so uh, this, yeah, this is going to be a little church history-ish, but hopefully it'll be interesting, but it's necessary, because what we have to get is the real presence of Jesus in communion, what that actually means, because if we don't understand the real presence of Jesus in communion, um, it's, it, it's going to zap or extract some of the value, some of the meaning behind it, and so we're going to start off, we're going to talk about medieval Catholicism, all right? Um, and some of you may have learned about this in, you know, Western Civ or, uh, you know, if you had to take a religion class in college. But, uh, and by the way, it's very dangerous if you're a Protestant to be teaching on Catholic communion, Catholic Eucharist. Uh, it's, you know, controversy. And one thing we need to say is, you know, not all Catholics believe the same things. I am just going to be talking about what I know from my reading of the Catholic Catechism and what I know from seminary study about medieval Catholicism and what the Council of Trent affirms as Catholic belief uh, in communion. But um, So first, uh, Catholics believe in salvation by grace. Um, in general, they believe in salvation by grace as it is dispensed. Oh, I just identified a Catholic person in the, in the audience. Great, now I'm even more nervous. No, just kidding. <laughs> Someone raised Catholic at least. Anyhow, salvation by grace. However, Depending on the Catholic person you talk to or the Catholic priest you talk to, um, there is a um, high value in the church's function in dispensing that grace. Um, and so, uh, so first off, um, the first kind of belief in like medieval Catholicism is that a person's sins are forgiven in baptism. It's called baptismal regeneration. So a person is... Um, a person who's, yeah, so when a baby is baptized, their sins are forgiven. So then you have what you call venial sins and mortal sins. And venial sins, um, uh, so, sorry, one difference historically is in Protestantism, we believe in one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We don't believe that the baptism of a baby results in forgiveness of sins. We don't believe that that is salvation. Salvation comes when a person reconciles with God. When a person comes to God, confesses their sin, and, um, and asks for, their, for God's forgiveness through Christ. That, that process of reconciliation, that moment of reconciliation, sins are forgiven forever. Past, present, future, it's over. You're in heaven. You're sealed. You know, when you die, you go directly to be with Christ in heaven. That is Protestant belief. In Catholic belief, it's a little more complicated. Traditionally, traditionally, not to blanket everybody, but um, you have venial sins, you have moral sins. So, um, I'm sorry, I'm trying to simplify this. So, when we'll talk, we'll just say the average Catholic adult. When you um, when you sin in the course of your week, your sins count against you. Uh, they count against you, and so that is the why it is so significant in Catholic theology for a person to go to church because they need to confess their sin to the priest and they need to take communion for their sins to be forgiven again. And so for um, traditional in Catholicism, the 
a person's salvation is in some ways in flux over the course of their life in between the delivery of the sacraments. Um, Venial sins, if a person dies with venial sins against their account um, and that have not been forgiven, last rites have not been administered, then that person would go to purgatory and they would have to spend some time in purgatory before they go to heaven as a way of kind of working out or dealing with remediating the venial sins. If a person dies with mortal sins against their account, even if they've been baptized, even if they've been to the sac- taken the sacraments throughout their life, but if they die with mortal sins against their account, then there is the belief that they go to hell uh, in tr- traditional, like traditional medieval Catholicism. Okay, and so um, so with that being said, that is why Catholics believe in transubstantiation, because there's a belief that at every communion service Jesus is being re-sacrificed every time, because he needs to die for your sins again to account for your sins at every communion service. Does that make sense? Okay, if you're a Catholic person and I'm driving you crazy right now, you can come punch me in the face afterwards or we can talk about it on, over on the stage over coffee. But that's the, my best understanding for my graduate work talking about this. So that is, so again, Catholics call a communion table the altar. They call it the altar because there is a sacrifice being made. That's why in a Catholic church, Jesus is on the cross because Jesus is still perpetually being sacrificed for the forgiveness of sins, as I understand it. Um, now, Protestant church, we refer to, sorry, I'm not going to get into that. So, with that being said, that's, that's, that's in the medieval Catholicism what the belief is. Am I, have I, am I totally, have I to, have the, has the train totally gone off the tracks? There's also communion every Sunday. Yes. For that, for that notion. For that, exactly. And that's why confession is important, that's why sacraments are important, that's why it's very important for Catholics to be at church every Sunday. So, to be remediating their sins continually. Um, okay. So here's the thing. In church, yes. What's the difference between a uh, venial sin and a moral like bad example? So an example would be um, an example would be like murder is a moral sin, um, whereas um, I think like lying would be a venial sin. I think. Sorry, clearly, clearly not the Pope over here. Um, all right. So in church history, you have this group called the Anabaptists, and they come after Luther. They come after Calvin. And Anabaptists, across the board, completely object to everything that Catholics have to say about communion. Anabaptists, they say, communion, Jesus is not there at all. He's not there at all. He's not there in the bread. He's not there in the wine. Uh, Catholics believe that you know, communion is for saving grace, for forgiveness of sins. Uh, Anabaptists say there's no grace in communion. No grace in communion at all. They say the only point of communion is just to remember. That's it. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians. That's the only point. So you have this, you know, these two completely opposite um, beliefs in communion established. The, uh, the Catholic, Catholic and the Anabaptist, okay? By the way, we're going to meet in the middle here in, the middle, in a minute. But so the Catholics believe in the actual presence of Jesus in the sacrament. Jesus is actually there. You're eating his body. You're drinking his blood. Anabaptist, not at all. Okay? And then Catholics believe, again, saving grace. Anabaptist, no grace at all. And uh, the purpose of communion, Anabaptists would say it's just to remember, whereas uh, Catholics would say it's, it's for the sake of your salvation. Okay? So, we have this lovely fellow, John Calvin, um, who a lot of times people have a bad image of John Calvin 
Calvinism, right? Predestination. God chooses who's in and who's out before the end of the world. There's no point and who cares? That's like the biggest caricature and misrepresentation of John Calvin. If you've ever read the uh, Institutes of the Christian Religion, it's probably one of the absolute best theological things ever written. It's pastoral. It's accessible. I know people who read it as a devotional. John Calvin is an absolute genius. And uh, a large part of what Anglican, like Episcopalian theology, comes out of uh, the thought of John Calvin. Martin Luther and John Calvin are the two biggest influences um, in Episcopal theology. Um, our, what, what the Episcopal Church, particularly the Advent, believes about communion is almost entirely driven by Calvin's writing. And it's beautiful. It's phenomenal. And so Calvin said, we've got to find a middle ground here, right? Um, this is not, uh, this is, you know, it's not just a memorial. It's not just, it's not, he, he, anyhow, G, Calvin is kind of synthesized with things, right? He brings it together. And so Calvin, we're talking about, here, okay, fancy word number one, okay? Stop me if it doesn't make sense. This is one of the coolest things I've ever learned in my life. But Calvin says, okay, what about the presence of Jesus? Is Jesus really there in the sacrament? And so there's this doctrine called the doctrine of perichoresis. What perichoresis means is, so in the Trinity, right, we have the Father, we have the Son, we have the Holy Spirit. We have three persons, one God, right? Basic, basic Trinitarian theology. And so, you know, and, and the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father, but they're all God. And it's one God, right? They're all unified as one. One God, three persons. Well, um, and you know, there's a little image there. They're all interconnected. And so what he says with perichoresis is that in each person of the Trinity, uh, each person of the Trinity dwells. All right? So you have the Father. And the Father's the Father. But the Son and the Spirit dwell within the Father. And here's the Spirit. And the Spirit is the Spirit, okay? The Spirit is not, is distinctly the Spirit, right? But in the Spirit dwells the Father and the Son. And here's the Son, and the Son is the Son. But within the Son dwells the Father and the Spirit, okay? Um, and so that is the doctrine of perichoresis, that each person is distinct, but within each person dwells all three people. <laughs> Pretty complicated. Mind getting a little tingly, right? Um, uh, this, it, sorry, does this make, does this make sense? Does this make sense? Virginia? Does it make sense? <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. So what Calvin says is, okay, we know that when we take communion, the Holy Spirit is there. The Holy Spirit is everywhere, right? The Holy Spirit is in us. The Holy Spirit is all around us. And so if the Holy Spirit is there when we take communion, by the doctrine of perichoresis, that means that Jesus is really there. And so he says he's not there actually in the, the bread and wine. And, um, and he's you know, not just there as a memory. But Jesus Christ is really present when we take communion because he is within the Holy Spirit. And so Calvin finds this middle ground. First thing, the first middle ground he says is, yes, Jesus is really present um, through the Holy Spirit. He's not, it's, he's not absent. He's not actually in the body and the blood, but he's there through the Holy Spirit. All right? Second thing, grace. Well, Calvin says, 
it's not saving grace. Like you're saved by your faith in Christ. You're, you know, you're saved by the by the work of the Holy Spirit to forgive your sins. Um, but it's not no grace. He says it's some grace. <laughs> it's a it's a grace that's a help. Like you know, I need I need grace to teach this lesson. You know, you're you need grace to keep your patience when your child's driving you crazy. Um, and uh, you know, we need we need grace to resist sin. Just all kinds of things like that. We need grace to do you know to to go to work tomorrow morning if you don't like your job. And so Calvin says yes. There is a supernatural transfusion of grace when you take communion. It's not a saving grace for the forgiveness of sins, but it is, it's more than just a, just a memorial. It's, it, it is a means of grace. And so, all right, high school student, got to help me. Three means of grace, three, way, three ways that God delivers his grace to people. One, I'll give you a hint, is communion. It's the sacraments. You might tell me a second, Sunday school, typical Sunday school answer. The Bible, great. What's the third? Prayer, good girl. Three means of grace, sacrament, Bible, and prayer. That's, that's kind of a Protestant view on grace. Last thing here, purpose of communion. Um, uh, Calvin says that, it's, that it's, it is a memorial. It's not, you know, it doesn't have to be one or the other, it's both. It's a way that we receive grace, it's a way that we're in the real presence of Jesus, but it's also a way that we remember. Right? I mean, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, you know, do this in remembrance of me like three times. So it is a memorial too. So Calvin takes the best and puts them all together. And there we have Anglican, uh, you know, the Anglican theology of communion, which is the best. No, just kidding. A little biased, but that actually is my view. Um, and so, so anyhow, we're getting, I promise, we're going to loop back. We're going to loop back to the original point here because I know we've taken a little, uh, taken a little, you know, trip, a detour, if you will. So, with that being said, farewell discourse. Again, getting back to this idea of coping with physical absence and how it is that communion is a, is a mechanism that God institutes to help cope with the physical absence of God. Um, and, as I'll talk a little bit, helps us to cope with the physical absence of loved ones. All right, so John 14 through 17, Jesus is, is preparing the disciples for, for his departure. Okay, And so one of the things he does is institute the Lord's Supper. Uh, but another thing that he does is he promises the coming of the Holy Spirit. Um, rats, I, I'm going to have to read this off my phone. So at the beginning of John 14, this is that famous book where Jesus promises that he's going before the disciples to prepare a place for them in heaven, prepare a mansion. Jesus says at the beginning of John 14, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled, getting him ready for his departure, Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said, Lord, we don't know the way. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Okay? So that's the, that's the context here of John 14. He's saying, I'm going to heaven. I'm preparing a place for you. I'll come for you again. But he establishes this time in between, right? This time in between, you know, his, when they'll be in heaven with him or his second coming uh, and the time right now where he's with him. And so he says, this is one of the richest, uh, richest parts of the Bible. Uh, if you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you 
and be with you forever. Okay, the, the language referring to the Holy Spirit as the advocate or the helper or the comforter, the paraclete. And then it says, the spirit of truth. So the spirit of truth is the one who will be with you forever. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. So he's pointing to Pentecost. And he is saying, again, as a means of of comforting them and helping them cope with his physical absence, he promises the Holy Spirit, and he says the Holy Spirit will live with you and will be in you. Okay? So think about that. It's almost like uh, we are a Holy Spirit sandwich, right? The Holy Spirit is within your soul. It's within you. And the Holy Spirit is all around you. He's sitting next to you. He's in front of you. He's behind you. He's above you. He's below you. So you are enveloped with God. Think about that. Think about that. There's like not not an inch of your life that is not uh, filled with the Holy Spirit or is not in the presence of the Holy Spirit. This is a powerful, powerful level of companionship uh, that Jesus is promising them. And he's just going to amp it up. Getting to my favorite doctrine. Okay, I will not leave you as orphans. Again, this you know addressing their fear of abandonment, addressing their concern for loneliness. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me, because I will because I live, you also will live. What a promise there of you know they certainly have to be troubled. They have certainly have to be worried about their sadness um, and you know dejection. But he says, because I live, you also will live. And when he says live in the book of John, he is talking about this constellation of hope and peace and joy um, and fulfillment. Okay, So he promises them they will have life. And then he says, on that day, you will realize that I am in the Father. Get ready for some perichoresis. I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Okay, This is Jesus. This is the King of the universe. This is the Savior and the Lord. And he is saying to them, I dwell in the soul of the Father, and you dwell in my soul. You are in me, and I am in you. Like Jesus is saying that I dwell in your heart. Okay? Um, Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love them and show myself to them. Okay? So, uh, because of, you know, it may be confusing, you're like, well, who lives in me? Is it the Holy Spirit who lives in me? Or is it Jesus who lives in me, right? Well, because you are now all experts on perichoresis, you know why, right? Because, because uh, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in your soul, Jesus dwells in your heart. And keep in mind, he says, you, you are in me. He says, I'm in the Father and you are in me. So that means in some way, now keep, keep in mind, this is, this is, this is impossible intellectual gymnastics. It's something we are not capable of, okay? But look, I am not capable of doing the kind of math and physics that Bo Turner can do. It's just never going to happen. It's not in my it's not in my hemisphere. But that doesn't mean that the stuff that Bo studies at SMU is not true. It's true, right? I there's no way I can understand the legal stuff that that Rhett and and uh, and Stephen do. I, it's not my not my bag, baby. Can't do it. But that doesn't mean that it's not true, right? Um, and so just because this reality that Jesus is in heaven, but Jesus is also in my heart, and I'm right here, but I'm also in the heart of Jesus, just because we can't get it doesn't mean it's not true. 
right? And that's just where some of it we have to just kind of say, be humble and accept the mystery of it. And as much as we can understand it, just be blown away with joy, <laughs> blown away with comfort that we are never alone. We're never alone uh, because our, our home, our true citizenship is in heaven uh, and because the God of the universe actually dwells in our heart and dwells all around us, okay? And so, um, you know, so this is, a, this is a huge word of comfort for us, huge word of comfort for us um, that we're never alone and that the comforter is always with us, okay? So um, God's promise present, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in union of Christ. I think we've covered that. Check. Uh, I mean, this is your this is your theological vocabulary day, if there ever was one, right? Um, drop some of these terms, at, you know, at your next cocktail party, and you'll just look like a, you know, look like you know what you're talking about. Um, okay, so talking about communion liturgy, uh, this is right one. This is this is not what we did this morning, but uh, I'm going to read some of this, and you're going to kind of see these concepts of both memorial, of grace, and of indwelling of the Holy Spirit in union with Christ in here. Okay, so. And here, this is, this is two totally separate sections, not together. Here we offer and present unto thee, O Lord, ourselves, our souls, and our bodies, to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice unto thee, humbly beseeching that we and all others who shall be partakers of this holy communion may worthily receive the most precious body and blood of thy Son, Jesus Christ, be filled with thy grace and heavenly benediction, and made one with him, that he may dwell in us, and we in him. So you see in communion, at the heart of it is union with Christ. Is union with Christ. That's true of all the sacraments. It's one of the primary themes in all the sacraments is union with Christ. But you can see that he may dwell in us and we in him. Okay, The communion being a physical mechanism that helps us to understand and internalize something that is intellectually so difficult to get. Right? We'll talk physically about that in a minute. We'll talk mechanically about it in a minute. Next thing. We do not presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord. This is the prayer of humble access. We do it every morning, every Sunday morning. We take communion. Uh, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies, we are not worthy so much as to gather the crumbs under thy table, but thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. Grant us therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of thy dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that we may evermore dwell in him, and he in us. So you see the, the intersection of these two words of comfort that Jesus offers the disciples. You see first this memorial of the indwelling of Christ and this memorial of, oh, and this, you know, this, this memory, this remembering, um, this physical helper in the sacrament, the, the, the elements of the sacrament, um, you know, for our help. And so here's the thing, and this, this may... Um, uh, hopefully this will help. This is how I think about it. So think about this. Uh, you know, what is going on when you take communion? You're taking bread. You're taking wine. You're putting them into your mouth. You are swallowing them. They are going into you, right? And so these tangible elements... Things that you can taste, that you can touch, that you can see, that you can hear when you swallow, hear when you chew, um, they are actually in you, right? And they are being dispersed, right? They're being digested and dispersed all, you know, all throughout you. And so think about that as a kind of like a physical helper to understand that the body, the body of Christ, the blood of Christ is actually in you. 
It's a physical way that you touch it and you taste it and you feel it. So the first thing I would say here is, um, you know, as a how how does it help us um, to kind of experience this comfort of the presence of Christ in us? Well, um, that's you know the the union with Christ, the indwelling of the Spirit, is a hard thing to understand. It's really really hard, and so God gives us something physical that we can do experientially that that engages all the senses that helps us actually in some way kind of feel Christ in us, taste Christ in us, see Christ in us. And we need that. He knows that we need that. Because for a lot of people, experiencing God's presence, it's just, they're, my, they're as faithful a Christian um, as, you know, they have as much trust in Christ as the, anyone else. And yet, in terms of like feeling God, as some people will say they do on a retreat or at a camp, or at a concert, or just in their daily life, that's just not their experience. I have lots of friends who they're like, I just don't, I don't hear from God, I don't feel him, that kind of stuff. And so particularly for that person, um, the sacrament is very helpful. It's very helpful to, taste, to, to take communion. And so when, if you're one of those people, um, if you're one of those people um, that just, think, I would encourage you to think about taking communion in a very sensory way. Um, and, uh, and yeah, to really taste the wine, to really chew the bread, to really, um, yeah, to take it all in as knowing that it is a biblically ordained way for you to be able to grasp and experience the presence of God in your life. Okay. So last thing here, um, this is, I've got like five minutes to do, or four minutes to do justice to something that's like five hours, but we're going to try our hardest. This is not the Tree of Life reference to the song at the 9 o'clock service. Um, but, so now, for me, um, why it is that communion has taken on such significance since my son died. Uh, I can remember about two weeks after he died just having a horrible night. Uh, you know, up at like 1 o'clock in the morning, weeping so miserably sad. And uh, I can just remember the Lord kind of impressing upon me that you are united to your son in me. Um, like I am, I am the, the link between you and your son, right? Let's think about this. Think about, um, I, I wish I could draw stick figures on the board, but it's a, it's an EYC tradition that we never have markers. Um, <laughs> the markers we need at least, or the ones we do, they don't work. Um, so, so if you think about it, think about us individually. Uh, let's think about Lauren. Lauren as a believer, she dwells in the soul of Jesus in heaven, some spiritual way, right? Jeffrey dwells in the soul of Jesus in heaven. Uh, Stephen dwells in the soul of Jesus in heaven. I dwell in the soul of Jesus in heaven. Anyone that you know who has died in Christ, grandmother, parent, child, uh, miscarried child, stillborn child, whoever it is, um, they dwell in the soul of Christ in heaven. We are all kind of in this same, I don't know how to describe it, the same circle. The same circle, which is the soul of God. We're all in there together. Uh, we are, you know, we are all one, one with Christ. And and so this is the image that I think about. I think about this oak tree. Uh, y'all, some of y'all have heard me talk about this before. Um, but uh, I say that the, the oak tree uh, is Christ. And I stand on one side of the oak tree, and my son stands on the other side of the oak tree. And we both are hugging the tree. We both can. Uh, you know, you know, for him, it's an actual physical thing. He is actually physically in the embrace of Christ. For me, it's a spiritual thing by faith. Um, but 
so for me, in coping with his absence, the best thing I can do is cling to the presence of Jesus in my life. The best thing I can do is, um, is enjoy and celebrate Christ in me and me in the soul of Christ in heaven. Um, because Jesus is the oak tree that my son and I rally around. It's the place where we meet. It's the place we connect. When I am connecting with Jesus, um, I'm not directly connecting with my son. Like, he's not here. Like, he's in heaven. There's none of this, you know, uh, you know, psychic hotline. There's spirits running around, seance, necromancing stuff. That's not true. That's not real. Um, but what is real is the unity that we have together in Christ. And so for me, taking communion is a trip to the oak tree. It's a trip to the oak tree. It's a place where, um, you know, I, in a biblical ordained way, I am physically um, embracing the oak tree in a way I can, in a sensory manner, taste and touch and feel. And I am remembering that I am in Christ and he is in Christ and we are one together in Christ. And so that is part of the beauty and the brilliance of how when we take communion, we all go up together because that is the unity of the church. The unity of the church is that we are all one together in Christ. And that is why, um, and it is a physical thing. Uh, all, you know, all the saints in heaven are one with Christ. All the saints below are one with Christ. And, um, and so it is, a, is a way that I can physically, there is an actual physical oak tree that I can touch and taste and feel um, that helps me until that day, which won't be long, but until that day when I'm physically with my son again and I'm physically with Jesus and, and you know, there's no more suffering, there's no more sadness. So um, I would say um, for the person who is grieving uh, the loss of a loved one, um, I would say lean into Jesus. He's, he's you know, he's, he's, he's the, the tie that binds. And um, uh, for a non-Christian who's checking out Jesus, I mean... This is really good stuff. You know, what matters is whether it's true or not. What matters is whether Jesus rose from the dead in the, in the, in the bodily resurrection. But I would say, like, this is something to stir your apathy. This is something to kind of wake you up. Because if this is true, holy cow. <laughs> the God of the universe dwells in my heart. He's all, I'm never alone. There's a comforter always with me. And, uh, and for, the, the, um, for people who just suffer and struggle, especially struggle with faith, especially struggle... Um, you know, with that feeling, the absence of God, I would just, I would, I would majorly point you to the table um, as a place where you can, uh, you can have some reassurance. You can have something to physically help you in that struggle. So let me pray for us. And if anybody wants to ask questions, I'll hang around. All right, Jesus, thanks for loving us. Thanks for dying for our sins. And I mean, who are we? Who are we um, that you would permanently dwell with us? Um, who are we that you would, you would choose to, um, to dwell in our, our sinful hearts? But, um, but it's but it's it's what you've given us, and uh, it's the generosity that you promised us, the generosity that you just the way you've chosen to be, and um, I just give you praise for that. I praise you for being so um, so kind and so generous to us, Lord, and uh, for all of us. Help us. Um, life is such a struggle, and um, I just pray that you would bless us with the reassurance of your presence in our life. Uh, bless us with the comfort of your grace, and I pray for all of us that communion would would uh, we would enjoy it fully as the gift that you've given us um, to help us in this life. I ask these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right.